This morning we come to the end of our series on 2 Samuel. And every week, as we've gone through this over the last few months, we've always started with these words on the screen. Your kingdom come. Those are very helpful words for this particular book. When we come to the places in this book where David, David's kingdom foreshadows Christ's kingdom, when we see those good things, at those points, we have been able to look up from our reading and pray in anticipation, your kingdom come. Let us experience the fullness of these good things. And when we've come to places where David's kingdom has disappointed, when it has fallen short, at those points, we've been able to look up from our reading and pray with hope. Your kingdom come. Because we know that Christ's kingdom will not disappoint. Thank God we have a king who will never fall short. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. His reign brings perfect peace and satisfaction to his people. That's the way we have read this book about David's reign. And in fact, that's how the New Testament treats David's reign. David's role in history was to prepare for the reign of David's greater descendant. God raised up David to make us hungry for Jesus Christ. God's plan was never to make David a hero. David points us beyond himself to the real hero. And that's true of this final chapter in the book, 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you haven't turned there, you'll find it on page 332 or in the larger print Bibles, page 511. This is a chapter about the terror and the blessing of being in the hands of the Lord. We'll read this together. 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aror, south of the town, in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tahtim Hodshi, and then on to Dan Jan and around towards Sidon. Then they went towards the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. 
Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster, and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arauna looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor. David answered, so that I can build an altar to the Lord, so that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arauna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arauna gives all this to the king. Arauna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arauna, no. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. This is God's word. As this record of David's reign comes to an end, we are left with two big truths. 
the unavoidable reality of God's wrath and the central reality of God's mercy. First of all, the unavoidable reality of God's wrath. Recently, I listened to a talk by a brilliant theologian. He was outlining the big themes of the Bible. And most of what he said was very helpful. But at one point, there was an opportunity for the audience to ask him questions. And one of those questions was about God's wrath. Is it a big deal? Should we be concerned about it? And the speaker's response was something like this. He said, well, yes, the Bible does mention it, but I really don't want to talk about it because it's not really what the Bible is concerned about. Now, for a brilliant theologian, that is just a bizarre thing to say. A 10-year-old reading through the Bible would realize God's wrath is a very significant theme in the Bible. Now, thankfully, it's not the central theme. We'll see that later. But anyone who reads the Bible will notice God's wrath is an unavoidable reality. It's a major theme in the Old Testament and it does not diminish in the New Testament. In fact, if anything, it ramps up in the New Testament. And the person who ramps it up is Jesus Christ. Jesus' teaching on wrath makes us more uncomfortable than anything we find in the Old Testament. If we decide to cut God's wrath out of the Bible, we have a whole lot of cutting to do. If we refuse to think about God's wrath, we are missing something the Bible does not want us to miss. It's hard to miss it here in our passage. Look again how chapter 24 begins. Verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. The again is probably a reference back to chapter 21, when God dealt with the sin of Saul. But here in verse 1, the point for us to notice is that God's anger burns against Israel. In this chapter, we are going to see David doing something foolish. But we must not miss this at the very start. Before David does anything, good or bad, we are told the Lord is angry with Israel. What we're not told is why the Lord is angry. Certainly there is a good reason. God is never angry without good reason. His anger is always justified. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. He is never guilty of unrighteous anger. And so here, there is a good reason for God's anger, but we are not given the reason. Because we don't need to know. What we do need to know is that God was angry with Israel before David got involved. 
And David then becomes God's instrument against Israel. Verse 1 says, the Lord incited David against them. So God is going to use David to bring judgment on Israel. And what David does is he sends Joab and the army commanders to enroll the fighting men. Literally, verse 2 says, the people. But later it becomes clear this is a military enrollment. Down in verse 9, those who have been counted are able-bodied men who could handle a sword. In verse 2, David sends Joab and his commanders out to count them. From Dan to Beersheba, that's a way of saying all through Israel. Dan was the northernmost point and Beersheba was the southernmost point in Israel. Count them all, David says. Seems straightforward enough. Nothing sinister about it. But Joab objects in verse 3. May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the King see it. But why does my Lord the King want to do such a thing? We don't know why God was angry in verse 1. And here, we don't know why Joab would object to doing a head count. God had not said it was wrong to count the people. In fact, earlier in the Bible, he gave procedures for this kind of count. But something about this bothers Joab. It bothers him in a pretty big way. And we might wonder, well, is it because Joab doesn't want the hassle of all this? Verse 8 tells us it took almost 10 months to do the job. So it was a big task. But that is unlikely to have bothered Joab. So we might wonder, was David planning maybe a big military campaign which God had not commanded? Was David getting arrogant? Did he want these numbers so he could boast about them? Those are all possibilities. But in the end, we just don't know why David wanted this. What is important is that David overrules Joab's objection. But when the job's done, nearly ten months later, David realizes he has sinned. Verse 10, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. One writer sums up the situation for us like this. Just as we do not know what offense Israel had committed to kindle the Lord's anger, So now, we do not need to know the details of what David had done. The important point is that the king now knew himself to be what we know the people also were, sinners against the Lord. In other words, the king and his people are now in the same boat. They face God's just wrath. Now, we have seen David in this position before. Back in chapter 12, after David had committed adultery and murder, he prayed a very similar prayer. But the situation here is different. 
Remember verse 1. The Lord is angry with Israel. He's using David to bring judgment on Israel. So yes, David is responsible for his own sin, for whatever it is that he has done wrong. And his own sin can be forgiven. But judgment is still coming on Israel. And so after David's prayer of repentance, we read in verse 11, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Clearly, none of these are good options. All of them would be terrible manifestations of God's wrath against sin. Whatever David chooses, it's bad. He cannot get Israel out of this. And if we pause here, we can acknowledge there is a lot left out of this passage. Lots of things we'd like to know. Why is God angry? What had Israel done? Why did David want the man counted? Why was that sinful? Those are interesting questions. But they are also distractions. They lead us away from what the passage wants to tell us. It wants to tell us Israel is under God's just wrath. And Israel's leader cannot take away God's wrath. He cannot lead Israel out from under that wrath. David's as guilty as everyone else. And whatever choice he makes in the situation, he cannot lead Israel out of this predicament. And you and I need to see what's true of this passage and this situation is true of the whole world. We can spend our time on lots of interesting questions about how God organizes this or that in the world. How he knows what he knows. What it means to talk about humans having free will if God is sovereign. We can come up with fascinating questions. But we mustn't let those questions distract us from what the Bible wants to tell us. The Bible tells us the whole world is under God's wrath. And his wrath is fair. Our sin is just as offensive as the offense God takes at our sin. God never overreacts. The world is under his wrath. His wrath is fair and none of us can take it away. None of our bright ideas are adequate. None of our plans are good enough. None of our politicians or priests or philosophers can get us out of this mess. Nothing we come up with can lead us out from under God's wrath. 
And when we finally see that, when that penny finally drops for us, then we are ready to see what David sees in verse 14. Remember, the prophet Gad has given him three choices, famine, enemies, or plague. But in verse 14, David doesn't choose any of them. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. David has been confronted with the unavoidable reality of God's wrath. But David knows there's an even more significant reality. David puts his hope in the central reality of God's mercy. When we read the Bible, we cannot escape the reality of wrath. But we also find something else. Something even more fundamental. We find mercy. And mercy is even more fundamental because wrath is always provoked by sin. There's a reason for God's wrath. But his mercy is free. It's unprovoked. It flows out of God because that's the kind of God he is. Wrath is his necessary reaction to sin. God tells us in the Bible he takes no pleasure in showing wrath. In contrast to that, God's mercy is unnecessary. But he delights to show mercy. And that's why we say God's mercy is central. It's not all there is to say. It makes no sense if we don't see the reality of his wrath. But his mercy is central. One preacher says, God is more merciful than anyone you know. You can count on that. There is no safer place to throw yourself than into the hands of God. Earlier in the Old Testament, when Moses asked God to show his glory, God replied by describing himself, I am the compassionate and gracious God. In other words, that's my glory, Moses. My compassion and my grace. There are other things you need to know about me, but this is the heart of who I am. God is teaching us his mercy is not some kind of surprise. His mercy is not the exception. God's mercy is his character. Do you know that about God? Sometimes I realize we are tempted to ignore God's wrath. And that's a mistake. His wrath is real. It's the biggest problem any of us are ever going to face. But I hope you can see our God is not defined by his wrath. His wrath is there in the background. The picture makes no sense without his wrath. But his wrath is not the heart of the picture. 
We don't truly know God until we see his mercy. And that's why when David sees wrath on all sides, he doesn't run from God, he runs towards him. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. David says, I don't know how to solve this, but I know God's mercy is great. He will have the solution. David looks to God for mercy. And the rest of this passage focuses on two details about God's mercy. The place of mercy and the cost of mercy. Look in verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster. And said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. The place of mercy. When the prophet Gad gave David those three options, the last option was three days of plague. And notice in verse 15, God sends a plague from that morning until the end of the time designated. The time had been announced as three days. But it turns out God cuts short his wrath. As his destroying angel approaches Jerusalem, God says, enough. He does not pour out the full measure of his wrath. He has mercy. And the place of mercy is recorded. God said enough, not in the city of Jerusalem. He said enough on a piece of high ground just outside Jerusalem. That's the place where God's mercy brought an end to his wrath. And it's not a very remarkable place. A farmer's threshing floor for dealing with grain. Now eventually this would become a remarkable place. This is where David's son Solomon would go on to build the temple eventually. This would become the place of God's mercy for many generations. Where Israelites would come to meet God. But before God made it the place of his mercy, it was just an unremarkable place. And that's how God works. He chooses unremarkable places to pour out his mercy. A thousand years after this, God showed his mercy on another piece of high ground outside Jerusalem. On a hill in the shape of a skull. It was known as Golgotha. And when God's wrath reached that hill, he said, enough. That piece of high ground became the place of God's mercy, not temporarily, like around his threshing floor, or even for a few generations like the temple. Golgotha became the place of God's mercy forever. It's the place where you and I can find mercy. 
We don't have to go there. We find mercy by trusting in the one who died there. And that points us to the last detail our passages focuses on. The cost of mercy. Verse 17 is a flashback. Verse 16, which we read a moment ago, showed us where God chose to end the plague. But now verse 17 takes us back to the time when the plague is still going on. We're told, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. David knows his own sin. But apparently he doesn't know what we know from verse 1. Even before David's sin, the people were already under God's wrath. David thinks this is all because of him. And as Israel's king, he offers to take the punishment on himself. It's a very noble idea. The shepherd will give his life to save the sheep. But David can't do that. He's a sinner too. His death can't save anyone. But look how God responds to David's prayer. He sends the prophet Gad, and Gad says in verse 18, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. And that's what David does. He climbs the hill to God's place of mercy. God's mercy hasn't come yet. Remember, these verses take us back to the time the plague is still going on. But now we learn God has chosen to show mercy in response to a sacrifice. That's part of God's plan. And the final verses are taken up here with the cost of the sacrifice. Initially, Araunah says to David, have it for free. Whatever you need, oxen, wood, just take it. You're the king. But look what David says in verse 24. No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David pays the price. He offers the sacrifice and God says, enough. There is always a price for God's mercy. The God of mercy is the God who cannot ignore sin. Here at Arauna's threshing floor, David paid the price. He paid it in shekels of silver. But on that other place of mercy, at Golgotha, God paid the price himself. The sacrifice on that hill was not oxen on an altar. It was Jesus' own body on a cross. God the Son paid the price so you and I could receive mercy. The sinless shepherd gave his life for the sheep. Well, that's where 2 Samuel ends. With a plague of wrath 
and a sacrifice on a hill. This book does not send us away with five tips for a more organized life. It doesn't give us three ways to de-stress our lives or improve our relationships. Those things might be helpful in some ways, but they're not what we really need. This last picture of King David sends us to find King Jesus and through him to find the eternal mercy of God. The New Testament tells us we deserve wrath by our very nature. Sin is a plague that brings eternal death to all of us. We've all earned God's condemnation. But the New Testament tells us God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's wrath is an unavoidable truth. We cannot ignore it. But if we will come in repentance and throw ourselves into God's hands, then we'll experience his mercy that saves us from wrath. So let's praise him for the cross. It's the place of mercy where Jesus paid the cost of mercy. If you've been trying to find God's mercy some other way, come and find it at the cross. And if you're a Christian, never forget the God you belong to is the compassionate and gracious God. The best place to be is in his merciful hands. Whatever it is you're going through, you are safe in the hands of the Lord. Let's praise him together as we sing, Come and see the King of Love.